This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and for the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation for For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate, or support us through Patreon. Hey for the Wild community, it's Ayana here. Today we're airing a special in-person conversation with Salmon Beyond Borders campaign director Jill Whites that was recorded during my trip up to Alaska and British Columbia back in 2018. At the time, I remember feeling so enraptured by the beauty of this region, while in the same breath trying to wrap my mind around the scale of devastation that resource extraction has brought to these primordial forests and wild salmon rivers. For me, this conversation helped connect the dots within the world of mining, from the complex permitting process to the nitty-gritty of enforcement, revealing a stunning picture of the true giant that is this industry. In many ways, Jill's work with Salmon Beyond Borders is all about intersections. Their campaign tracks a dozen large-scale mines at the headwaters of the Taku, Stikine, and Unic rivers that originate in northwest British Columbia and flow into southeast Alaska. These three transboundary rivers are the cultural and economic lifeblood of this region, but currently there are no enforceable policies in place to safeguard wild salmon, clean water, or the many jobs and lifeways they support from mining projects upstream. Uniting a diverse coalition from both sides of this international border, the Salmon Beyond Borders campaign follows the path of water that messes the colonial boundaries we've etched into place. Salmon live beyond borders. Pollution knows no bounds. And we too, in our strategic organizing, must build bridges across these critical watersheds and beyond. Okay, so my name is Jill Whites. I live in Juneau, Alaska, and I work on the Salmon Beyond Borders campaign, which is set to defend and sustain the Taku, Stikin, and Unic watersheds. These are shared watersheds that originate in British Columbia and flow into Southeast Alaska. And we are tracking more than 12 large-scale open pit mines that are being developed and or are in operation at the headwaters of these rivers. And I think that the best part of the work that I get to do is connect with people throughout Southeast Alaska as well as British Columbia to learn not only about the shared values of wild salmon but also to really get a better understanding of how we want to manage these watersheds now and into the future and what we want these wild iconic places to look like for the generations to come. I grew up in Minnesota Mm -hmm. on the Mississippi River actually. So I grew up spending a lot of time on the water there in lakes throughout Minnesota but I moved up to Juneau 12 years ago and I think evolved like a totally different relationship with not only fishing, but fish and obviously everything that 
fish mean. Yeah. Okay. So you you came up here twelve years ago. You were fishing, mm-hmm. and then at some point, when did it turn to becoming an advocate and working and giving so much of your vital energy to the protection of these fish? Like, wh- where did that? How did, How did that, that happen? happen? Yeah. It started as a kid, right? Like growing up on the Mississippi River. My dad comes from a long line of, of, of fishermen, pun intended. Huh? But my dad kind of instilled that, like, <laughs> my dad kind of instilled that, just that excitement and, like, interest for being on the water and, and fish in particular. And, like, on Sundays when we were kids, if my mom wasn't around, my mom would ask dad to take us to church and he would take us down to the river and we'd pick up trash. You know, so I think that has like always been part of me. And I, I was able to guide a lot of trips in northern Minnesota and Canada and, and just be outside with people and experience it for myself. But then also other people and being around them as they experience nature and wild places. So I think it's been that the like conservation ethos, I think, has been inherent in my life, as I think it is in, in most people in general. But I think coming to Alaska and being exposed to just this lifestyle and learning about the traditional and customary ways of how people have lived here for thousands of years and really understanding not only fishing to be this like exciting sport and something that provides sustenance, but really just like part of the fabric of culture, really I was able to like just appreciate it beyond a level I ever thought I would. So when I came back to Juneau after studying in Denver, I worked as a compliance and enforcement officer for the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. And for about four years, I was tasked with inspecting large-scale mines, seafood processing plants, large-scale construction projects, all across the state from Prudhoe Bay all the way down to Ketchikan. And I saw you know, a lot of what was was happening with these projects and, and the struggles uh, within the various permitting processes. And I just struggled with the fact that I didn't think we were being as effective as we could be in order to actually conserve our resources. Granted, in Alaska, of course, it's a balance about extracting and developing, but also ensuring that there are conservation measures in place so that some of these industries, even the extractive ones, can can be managed well and, and last as long as they are able to, to last, right? So yeah, I think through that work, I just learned a lot about the way things work in this state, but was not satisfied with my ability to kind of create or implement or be part of actual change. And so becoming a part of the work for these various conservation measures throughout the state of Alaska has just kind of allowed me to really lean into advocacy work and bring that knowledge that I learned while working for the state of Alaska into how we ensure that these things are working in some sort of unison I think was what I felt I could really bring to the table and I think that I had no idea that starting my work with with conservation groups in Alaska would lead me to where I am now but I along the way the last five years of working with the Salmon Beyond Borders campaign have I think evolved an even more amazing understanding and passion for salmon as a as an animal as a wonderful animal and just what it means to so many people and so many different ways of life and and living, really. Yeah. I'd really love to hear about the years you spent in all of these different sites. Prudhoe Bay, I mean, whoa, I can't believe you were there. And, And the mining sites, I think the fact that you did that work, just thinking about the depth of understanding you have at this point from actually doing that work in person, I just feel like that gives you so much more expansive breadth of understanding. But also I'm really interested to hear like, what was that like? What were the things you were seeing? What were the things that you had power over? 
like what can a governing agency actually tell somebody to do you know like let's just say you made it a you know and i don't know how this works but if you were able to see something that was out of line do you have the power to do something about it and do they actually follow the recommendations or even maybe it's not even a recommendation maybe it's like you must do this and do they even do those things yeah for example i think i would say i spent most of my time at mines and seafood processing plants and i'll focus in on mines just a bit because i think there's a bit more meat to those types of stories right in alaska there's a there's a self-reporting requirement right so mines do their monthly reporting on the various water quality parameters, for example. And so they have their technicians go out and test water quality samples, and then they report back to the state. And so there has to be some sort of trust there that the agencies are putting into the industry. And then it is up to one to maybe three enforcement officers to cover the entire state of Alaska to go out and actually inspect not only the facilities, but the ways in which their technicians are conducting these samples, et cetera. And so I think there's a ton of probability for error in that setup, but it is the way that it is. And I think that, you know, we would issue what were called notices of violation or NOVs, which are kind of like a slap on the wrist of like, you exceeded these parameters and or you know, you didn't have proper absorbency pads around this one drainage or whatever it might be. And those notices of violation would, you know, pile up and pile up and pile up. And then it would be a compliance violation, which is like the next step up. And then it would get to an issue of of an enforcement action. And I prepared a couple of those in my time Um, and would bring them to the commissioner's level at at DEC. And it was, no, 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 work with them to get in compliance with their permit, even though these were like pretty large exceedances. And I would be sent back out into the field to work with them to get in compliance with their permit. Meanwhile, I would be sent to a small community in southeast Alaska to issue a fine you know, like a $5,000 fine to a mom and pop shop operation that didn't know they had an oil tank underground on the property that they bought, right? So just a a lot of inequity there. I don't think that it's complete ineffectiveness. I think there's just so much that goes on in Alaska and has, you know, like so much massive development happens so quickly here. And I think we're still trying to sort through how best to kind of mitigate that but also learn from those lessons and the way that we've been operating under these permits and these permitting structures figuring out how to move forward so that we can ensure development and conservation kind of work hand in hand how are you trained to know what to look for or what were you looking for that's a really good question um we were enforcing wastewater discharge permits so anytime like at a mine mining waste comes in contact with water of any kind that's considered wastewater. And so there is a proper way of how you channel that, store it, sample for it, process it, et cetera. And so we were kind of like checking the boxes to ensure that protective measures were in place. And at like seafood processing plants, it was anywhere from, you know, the size of the ground up fish tissue, bone, skin, if it was like meeting the the right size to go through their filtration and it was like climbing down ladders under the docks to make sure they didn't have any straight pipes of their their waste just being flushed out into the ocean it was it was kind of crazy the various things that not only we got to see but that we were looking for and i think that it definitely took a while to figure out not only what to look for but like how and where to look for those things yeah it's crazy what we're dealing with pipelines and fisheries and that that's all in the same job jurisdiction right and that there were only like three and a half of us for the entire state of alaska at that time the mining stuff is really intense you know and i and i think about when we had our interview with jacinda mack and how she said mining is really like a wastewater storage Mm -hmm. project because 90 percent 
of what comes out of mine is usually, or around 90% is waste. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the tailings ponds. Right. Well, it's like, how are, how is a tailings pond really going to hold the waste? How, I mean, it rains. How is it actually going to hold? I don't understand the logic behind that. Neither it, do I. Tell okay. me when you figure that out. Okay. I think the, I mean, it, it's crazy, right? The, just the idea of tailings facilities and especially these large scale open pit mines like those that we're focusing on in the transboundary region you know the mines in alaska that i have inspected are like minuscule compared to the projects that we're focusing on in the transboundary watersheds and for example mount Polly, like you spoke with jacinda about that same company imperial metals owns and operates the red chris mine which is at the headwaters of the stikine watershed and that i believe is you know it i can't even think of like the exact number but it is like at least 10 times as large as the mount Polly tailings mm. facility i've flown over it it's insane mm. just to think of like it is just this massive valley that is a tailings facility storage mm. facility and not only does it not make sense because you're like how do they accommodate for the amount of rainfall and just the like sheer environment that is you know northwest british columbia but these things have to be kept and maintained in perpetuity when they're permitted it is as if these tailings facilities will be managed forever these mines will sometimes only last for up to 20 years right mount Polly failed after 17 years these projects are built as if they're like indestructible and we know that there are reports post Mount Polly that say there will be two every 10 years, if not more, just because of human error and how these structures are, are built. And the mining industry is notorious for not being required and not choosing to implement the best available technologies or practices to do everything that they can to take the precautionary measures to protect human health and safety and the environment. So I think beyond the fact that it's just like a fascinating thought in an engineer's mind that this will last forever and actually support and sustain not only the tailings waste, but the water as well is beyond my brain's ability to comprehend. But I think even more than that, it's, it's the fact that we're authorizing these projects to be there forever, you know, and in British Columbia in particular, these mining companies can come through conduct their operation for 10, 20 years and or file for bankruptcy and leave. They can just walk away from the project. Then who's responsible to keep up with the tailings storage? It's a lot. I mean, if you look at the province of British Columbia, there are more than 2,000 abandoned mines. So, and those tailings facilities are abandoned? Abandoned. And you look at projects like the Tulsa Quachief mine that's just in the Taku watershed, just over that mountain there. That mine has been abandoned since 1957. It's a tiny mine. It's been leaching acid mine drainage into the Tulsaqua River, which is a tributary of the Taku River. And it has not been cleaned up. The current owner has filed for bankruptcy. And so right now it's in the hands of the British Columbia government. And they continue and have been saying for the last at least five years that they have to like sort through this bankruptcy ruling to determine who's going to be responsible for the bill and cleaning this up. And we know, and we have on record asking the BC ministry officials, we know that the British Columbia government has the authority to hold the historical owner responsible for the closure and cleanup of this project. And the BC government can not only do that for this project, but the other 2,000 abandoned projects in British Columbia. And yet, they're not doing it. But in instances like Mount Polly, for example, there is not adequate bonding put up front by these mining companies. So for that project that failed, you have $40 million worth of taxpayer money going towards the cleanup efforts there. And it's likely what will happen for the Tulsqua Chief Mine because it's what the state of Alaska and Alaskans have been asking for for 60 years is for cleanup of that. And it'll likely be taxpayer dollars. There's a huge problem with the fact that not only is the BC government allowing 
the mining industry to not be held accountable, but there is no mechanism in place for downstream interests, states and, you know, U.S. US citizens to, to hold accountable the impacts from, from these projects. We're not under any illusion that we are going to stop mining whatsoever. We, we need mines. We need them. <laughs> Everything that we use is, is a product of a mine to some degree or from a mine to some degree, right? But like we need to, one, ensure that there is a polluter pays principle. If you're going to come in and operate and make money, you are going to ensure that you are applying best available practices and technologies and that there is money put up front from a mining company prior to a project being permitted so that what happens following closure is not left upon people of that land and downstream communities. And I think it's time that we start talking about it and, and about accountability and about like for example, if mining is going to happen as it needs to, we need to make sure that the demands, so the companies that are producing Apple products, etc., are utilizing material that is coming from mines that are adhering to the highest standards that they can, especially when they are being put at the headwaters of large wild salmon rivers and in areas that are very essential and unique for connectivity and conservation of wild places and communities and culture, etc. When you first said, because we need mines, there was part of my body that's like, no, no, we don't. No, we don't. you know, it's like, mm -hmm. I so want to believe mm -hmm. that we don't need these mines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the same time, like, I absolutely have an iPhone and I certainly have an Apple computer. And so I'm just as complacent as anybody else in this needing of mines. Um, so it's like, I really want to believe we don't need mines. And I also understand that industry isn't going anywhere tomorrow. And so it's important to have these regulations in place. But then I want to ask you, is it actually possible to have a mine that isn't polluting? Is that possible? Not in my knowledge, right? It's not. It's it, There are going to be impacts to the environment no matter what. But I think we have to start asking ourselves, where are... Where are we okay? And by okay, I mean it's going to be somewhat of a sacrifice, right? Like, do we want them to be at the headwaters of major salmon rivers? Do we want them to be in areas where, you know, there is geological activity and potential for, for tailings disasters to continue, et cetera? It's, it's starting to ask those questions of what types of mines, where, and why aren't we holding these mining companies to the highest standard? Certainly they can afford to apply these best available practices and technologies, but they're not being required to do so. 
So we need to start asking these hard questions of our government officials why that is the case. And I would submit that it is the mining lobby, as you mentioned earlier. We are up against giants. And again, it's not to put a stop to all mining. It's ensuring that they are held accountable for their ability to profit. Hearing that some of these mines are at the headwaters, all of them to me are sacred headwaters, is, it is insanity. It's like, what the F? How could we even consider putting mines in these places? Of course, then I go, well, it does make sense that there potentially are areas that aren't in headwaters, that aren't right near watersheds. Right. But then again, what that's kind of like this judgment call on this area is okay to be sacrificed right. and this area isn't. And in a sense of an ecological sense, I could be like, well, we could justify why that makes sense and it's also this very challenging value judgment Mm -hmm. that we're having to place it's hard it's hard because there always are those sacrifice zones sacrifice communities sacrifice ecosystems like the solar farms in the desert and oh it's the desert it's the mojave there's nothing here when really there's so much life in the mojave and there's all these endemic species that are being cut out and you know something that i try to sit with a lot of what as a civilization are we willing to sacrifice for these modern conveniences that we know aren't even actually fulfilling us? It's, it's not something that everybody's now happy because they have a TV and a computer and whatever. But I mean, that's a whole other conversation. So coming back to transboundary issues, it seems like in a sense, working with transboundary or working as a U.S. citizen fighting against B.C. mines there's something that's kind of, what do I want to say? It's almost like the U.S. can almost point a finger and be like, see, Canada, you're bad. And a side note to that, the falseness of B.C. to me and what the U.S. thinks about British Columbia and Canada in general. Oh, Canada, Canada, oh my gosh, they're so environmentally Beautiful friendly. British Columbia, that's beautiful, how they market. Beautiful British Columbia and B.C., oh my gosh, they have such a better administration up there and they're so much more environmentally friendly and... There is literally this picture painted about how eco-friendly and and forward-thinking Canada is. And I feel like the U.S. has, a lot of U.S. citizens has no effing clue the deregulations that are happening in Canada and British Columbia, Mm -hmm. let alone the tar sands, which is the largest industrial oil extraction project in the world. But somehow Canada has a great marketing campaign to make it seem like they're all hunky-dory when really they are just effing up things left and right. And I drove through British Columbia to get up here and there are areas that there really are not a lot of people. And so there's just no watchdogs. There's just nobody around. It's out of sight, it's out of mind. The tar sands, Northwest British Columbia, these places where it's kind of a free for all for development because no one's there. It's Northwest British Columbia has about 2000 people living in it. Whereas just across the border, the political border into Southeast Alaska, there's 75,000 people. So to some, Northwest BC is like, you know, the middle of nowhere, but to us, it's the middle of everything, right? So yeah, I think it's unfortunate that it is that like concept of out of sight, out of mind. It's, you know, a lot of what we're doing with the Salmon Beyond Borders campaign is not, not putting it as an issue that is the United States versus Canada or Alaska versus British Columbia, but it is that these are shared watersheds and these are shared resources and we have to figure out how we want to manage them going forward, right? And I think it, it's going to take all of us in order to bring these places to the periphery of people down south, especially that, yeah, don't have the clear story for for the way especially that bc operates especially in northwest bc they don't have a clue they don't have a clue like the mining industry is marketing northwest british columbia as the golden triangle like there are literally flyers and emails and maps that go out to shareholders and investors that say come join the party of the golden triangle in northwest bc like it's open for development how do we combat that how do we ensure that this land, these resources, it's, it's not a free-for-all. It's certainly not a free-for-all for the mining industry. There are indigenous communities that 
you know, the British Columbia government and the mining companies suggest that they are in consultation with. Consultation is not consent. There are so many, so many issues inherent within this transboundary issue beyond just the impacts of mining to, to water and salmon, right? It's about these mining companies coming in and dividing communities and providing two options to folks in communities. You either work for the mine or you leave, right? And it's happening with people our age. Like younger generations are not staying in their communities because they're either not going to work for the mine and, and they've just been so, it's been ingrained in their, in their minds that if they don't work for the mine, they don't have anything to contribute to the community. Therefore, they're leaving and they're, they're not there to support elders or, or the younger people coming up, right? So I think there's just so many, so many issues that we could dive into. But I think, again, it is just starting these conversations and changing the conversation where it's, it's not about jobs and it's not about economy and that mining is the only way to achieve either of those things. But really, how do we want to manage these shared places these shared environments, these these rivers that connect communities and cultures and create a way that we're all able to live here. Wow. Well, I want to talk about salmon at this point. And so we've heard about the mines, and I'm sure there's years more to learn about, and we've just started scratching the surface. But let's say there's a mining disaster on a headwaters and there's toxic water being poured into these rivers. What happens to salmon and subsequently other species, including humans, that are affected by mining disasters? What are some of the things that start to show up? Well, I mean, it's different, right, with the various forms of mining. And for example, if you look at transboundary mining issues in the British Columbia, Montana region, There are over a thousand years of legacy mining impacts from coal mines in that watershed where they're seeing not only impacts to water quality, but they're actually seeing deformities in fish and birds, and they have been for a while, right? So it's these long-term impacts to water quality that take a while but do accumulate and are now... Of, of great concern, right? You actually have evidence that these contaminants are affecting fish populations as well as bird populations. So, you know, then you move to the Mount Polly example, right, where this mine failed, sent 6.6 billion gallons of toxic waste into nearby waterways and Quinell Lake, which is like this pristine spawning ground for wild salmon is now basically like a settling pond for that project. And the sockeye return this year was good, which was impressive because salmon are quite resilient, right? But, you know, and so a lot of people said like, well, it's it's indicative that, you know, my, even a mining catastrophe like that is not going to significantly impact salmon. Scientists maintain that it's still too soon to tell long-term impacts from that disaster, especially on that particular sockeye run, because this is now four years in that same sockeye return. But if you think about it in any of these instances for hard rock mining, like Mount Pauly, the heavy metals settle in the sediment and therefore remain at the beds of these rivers for a long time. No matter what type of cleanup efforts happen, there's always going to be the deposit of these heavy metals. And so over time, that will affect salmon's ability it will over time affect the quality of the habitat and you know in Alaska we have boasted for a long time that we have the best managed fisheries in the world and I would submit that we absolutely have really great fisheries management in most instances but the reason why we have such globally significant salmon population is because we actually have habitat because we haven't destroyed all of the habitat yet right So I think that, you know, these mining projects, whether or not they're catastrophic events, they will inevitably begin just because of their discharge and the slow release of these heavy metals and the accumulation of them over time will impact 
salmon populations and their ability to return to their spawning and rearing grounds. We know that from other places and how salmon have interacted with mining in other places. You know, we're already seeing declines in our wild salmon populations in Alaska. This year especially was the first year where there were king closures throughout the state as well as into British Columbia. And the Taku and the Stikin and the Eunuch rivers in particular, the three watersheds that we focus on for the Salmon Beyond Borders campaign, they produce 80% of Southeast Alaska's wild king salmon. Why would we even risk allowing more mines to be developed in these watersheds? And going back earlier to no-go zones and where mines are acceptable, what areas are sacrificial, etc., it's it's not even just one project at the headwaters of each of these watersheds. There are multiple. We're tracking 12 projects. And these aren't small projects. These are large-scale hard rock open pit mining projects. Some of these watersheds that have three to four that are in various stages of permitting development or operation. So it's where is that question of like how much, if we need mining, how much mining do we need? Do we need to have three massive open pit projects at the headwaters of these major salmon rivers that produce 80% of our king salmon, right? It's just, it's baffling to me. And I think that though the Alaska administration and our congressional delegation have been supportive, I don't think they're making enough demand of the British Columbia or Canadian federal governments. Why would we allow for this to happen without having enforceable protections or financial assurances at play. I mean, money doesn't matter if you wipe out a fishery, in my opinion, right? Like commercial fishermen, absolutely, there should be, you know, some response because that is their livelihood. But like beyond that, the people that live here and the, the indigenous people of these places, it would just wipe out a way of life and you can't put a price tag on that. hills You will find my bones Buried to the neck In a pile of rubble Flesh set free In the belly of a condor Well, I wonder then if the U.S. and B.C. governments, Canadian governments, basically think that mining is a more profitable industry than commercial fishing. You would, you would think that. That's seemingly the trend, absolutely. That that's what they value more. They value the opportunity for development of mines more than they value the sustainability of salmon runs. 
it's evident that there's, you know, bigger immediate profit that can come from these mines, whereas you have a sustainable resource like salmon and the fisheries and the well-managed industry that it is versus this super extractive, destructive industry that can come in, totally exploit not only a place, but people within that place and then pack up and leave. So... One thing you had said is that one reason why, you know, maybe the main reason why the fisheries programs are good here is because there is habitat for the salmon to come home to and spawn in. But I also have heard this year up and down southeast into even Prince William Sound that the salmon runs are collapsing this year. King, silvers pinks it just the numbers aren't coming back like you had said the kings the king openers were closed early what do you think about that like what do you think is happening i think there are so many things happening but with that i'm kind of tired of hearing managers say that that there are so many things happening we don't know right and so my response to that is like what do we know And like, why aren't we putting some of those pieces together? We don't know yet what's happening to our wild population. Certainly we know hatcheries have a part of it. The blob has a part of it. You know, ocean conditions, absolutely. Like there are so many things happening. So why wouldn't we be taking precautionary measures to one, maybe not introduce fish farming into Alaska and two, we should be precautionary to ensure that the habitat that we do have is conserved and maintained and therefore ensuring that we have adequate protections in place within our rivers that are the place where we get our salmon from. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of things. I'm not a scientist, but I really do know that there's a lot of concern and there's a lot of resources going into trying to figure out what some of these pieces at play are. And I think in the interim, we need to be doing everything we can to ensure proper management, not only of the fish themselves, but their habitat. And how much of your work, like, do you guys outline, or if you do, like, long-term economic relationship of, like, maintained salmon versus mining? Like, it just seems so backwards-ass that we, like, do all these things that make quick money. And I'm just wondering, like, how much, if there are people that are number crunching and like what that looks like. Yeah, so I mean, that is like, that's the case that you have to make for any conservation ask is like you have to apply the economics, especially in Alaska, right? And so we've invested a lot of resources into economic studies and determining what even these three transboundary rivers provide and produce for the Southeast economy. And just the like salmon fisheries alone from those systems and the associated like, you know, family permit holders, et cetera, just these systems. We're not including like the amount of money from processors, seafood processors, et cetera. But like just those rivers alone, it's a significant portion of the billion dollar fishery that is Southeast Alaska. Right. And when you start to put those economic values like 48 million dollars just from the Taku, Stikin and Eunuch and then the subsequent like permit holders and what their income is and what that adds to the bigger numbers etc it's that's where you get the attention of elected officials right and so it is it's such an integral part of understanding the economic benefits both from mining and from fisheries and how that money is you know, kept in region and dispersed outwardly. And I think it's really interesting. So we have that and we use that within our, in our messaging and kind of as leverage as to why these matters are so significant. But I think what's really interesting and with all the various issues related to development and salmon habitat protection, et cetera, is you have a lot of the industries saying, you know, if we are trying to conserve or protect salmon habitat. We're gonna like destroy jobs. We're gonna destroy the Alaska economy where I think it's really interesting, not only in Alaska, in BC as well, these mines, the employees at these mining operations are 
not local, you know, like in Juneau, there are two mines in Juneau where I think predominantly there are a lot of local employees, like a lot of Juneau residents. But if you look at projects up in rural Northern Alaska, like Red Dog Mine, or if you look at these projects in British Columbia, you know, I'm sitting on the airplane with these guys that fly up for two weeks and, you know, I see them in Seattle when I'm on my way home and they're coming from Texas. You know, they come up here, they work on the slope for two weeks and then they leave and they take their money elsewhere, right? So like really how many jobs and what economic impact do some of these big development projects really actually contribute to the long-term prosperity of our state? It's just... I don't think they make a sound argument in that. That's what I talked about with Washington leaders last week. It's like they're putting so much money into recovery right now. And why would the state of Alaska like want to go down that track of like losing it so that we just are like doing everything we can to try to get it back? It's not thinking long term whatsoever, you know, and if we want to remain this great state that is a salmon state, we need to be doing everything we can to ensure that we still have strength in that resource and that that's what sets us aside from the rest of the world actually you know that's what makes us unique and what gives us a globally significant industry that is renewable that does sustain hundreds and thousands of families in Alaska generations you know it's an easy Easy one for me, but not everybody sees that. I mean, it's really easy to just feel like so depressed and depleted after having some of these conversations, right? And I think, yeah, it's it's daunting to think about business operating as it is and has been for so long and how do you conquer that and how do you have other voices be heard? How do you change the conversation? And I would say that at the end of the day, the reason that I personally keep doing this work is because I think that amidst the constant battles and challenges, I think that there is so much opportunity for change and for collaborations and for people to be talking about shared values and how we, how and why we value the things that we do. So I think there is like a positive twist that I like to think about at least in the sense of like we're connecting with people because of the rivers that connect our places and what they provide for us and through all of these catastrophes and trauma that indigenous communities have suffered through for hundreds of thousands of years I feel like there's sort of a, an approach at, at a pinnacle point where indigenous voices are being heard. And I, I would submit that they're not being heard enough, but I think they're getting louder. And I think that as many people of the general public that can start asking these questions of not only our government and not only industry, but investors and shareholders of these companies, like why and how and why are we not holding them accountable and to the highest standards if they are going to potentially wipe out communities and economies and wild species of animals that provide so much sustenance for life? Why aren't they not required to 
implement the best available practices and technologies, etc. So I think people are starting, it's slow, but people are starting to get momentum. And I would submit there is a movement that is happening and it is just continuing to like work collectively on the constant grind that, that is needed. Love that talk. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, you have to put a positive twist. Like you have, there has to be, cause otherwise like right, what the like, fuck are we all doing? Right. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm production team member Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was from Eliza Edens, Bird by Snow, and Treya Lamb. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our production team, Aidan McRae, Carter Lou McElroy, Hannah Wilton, Francesca Glassbell, Aaron Wise, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger. If you enjoy today's conversation, please rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with our projects and offerings, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting forthewild.world slash subscribe. <laughs>